0: Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Luke's Gospel chapter 3 covering verses 1 to 9. Welcome to Christ the King on this Epiphany Sunday. Let me just make mention briefly by way of introduction that uh, we do have with us uh, visitors with Bishop Grant and Dr. Wendy Lamarckhand who are seated at the table here near the middle and we'll be hearing from them later in the service. Uh, You're familiar uh, with their ministry in Ethiopia from the way we pray for them (laughs) month to month and we're delighted they could be with us and we'll hear from them later. I wanted you to know why there's a purple shirt seated at the table. Uh, Secondly, by way of introduction, I blame the cold for the fact that I just forgot my collar this morning. I'm making no statement by not wearing my collar this morning. Somebody asked me after the first service, why why do you not wear your collar? I just just forgot it (laughs) this morning. So that's out of the way? No one's concerned about that? What? Somebody have one they're going to send up here? No. Okay. <laughs> we have been following here at Christ the King. Some of you are back now from holidays. Others of you have been here from through the course of it. But we have been following here at Christ the King the early chapters of Luke since the start of Advent. And as we now enter into the season of Epiphany we enter a time in which we are supposed to be reflecting on the revealing, the epiphany, the manifestation of Jesus, of God's plan of salvation through his Son for all peoples. That's the theme of this day and of this season, and so it seems fitting to me that we would, in fact, continue for a little time in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 3. So, we're continuing there today, and at least for the next couple of weeks, with today's text, though read through verse 14, I'll just go through verse 9 in this sermon, and we'll continue on next week. And as is our habit at Christ the King, we move through the text together, asking the Holy Spirit to use it, to speak to our lives, to reveal Jesus to us in this epiphany tide. So keep your Bibles open there in Luke 3, if you would, as we begin. The nine verses that we have today, I'll just simply divide into two parts, where Luke first introduces John the Baptist's ministry in verses 1 to 6, and then records what John said beginning in verse 7. And, of course, what John says then continues into next week beyond verse 9. But if you just look there at verse 7, you see the, the structural hinge of the passage as I'm presenting it, where Luke writes, He, that is, John, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. He said therefore, Luke writes, Oh, look at that. Okay, just a second. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, now watch out. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Authority has suddenly descended. Uh, no. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> same sermon at 9 as at 11. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. In a way, my whole sermon is an attempt to explain the word therefore in verse 7 because John shows up saying some explosive things. Why? What's going on? That's the point of this morning's sermon. is just to get us into understanding why John's doing what John's doing, which is what Luke is doing in the first few verses of chapter 3. So verses 1 to 6 are Luke preparing us for what John has to say, beginning in verse 7. That's the structure, very simple. Only one other thing by way of introduction that I'd say, and it's this. That what John said then to the crowds gathered at the Jordan i'm proclaiming to you still applies to us today brothers and sisters there can be a tendency understandable in one sense to sort of put brackets around john's ministry and his message but we'll see that this is all very much of a piece with jesus and so we do well to listen to the voice of john in these first few sundays of epiphany Now, there can be no question as to the significance of this moment when John appears on the scene. Because in verses 1 and 2 of the text, uh, ably read for us, Luke lists no fewer than seven historical figures to situate John's ministry in a real point of history, in a real place. They're names that tell us the dating of John's appearance, even as they remind us, if you know the names, of something of the dark political ambiance of the Roman and Palestinian world. It was, Luke says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The date is A.D. 29, or... Very, very close to that, but A.D. 29. Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea. Herod rules in Galilee. Caiaphas is the high priest. Familiar names, those three, if you know anything about the end of Jesus' life. And it's in this context... With those figures already on the scene of history, that verse 2 says, The Word of God came to John. The Word of God came to John. It is the prophetic call. We're ready for this. We've been expecting this since Roger's sermon at the very start of Luke 1, first Sunday of Advent. Remember when Gabriel said to Zechariah in the temple? of Zechariah's future son, verse 16 of Luke 1, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Don't lose that. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Or, in other words, as Zechariah would himself say some months later, from Marian's sermon on the fourth Sunday of Advent, if you remember it, later in chapter 1, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the The forgiveness of their sins. And then we left John at the very end of chapter 1, verse 80, where it says he was in the desert. The Lord Jesus has been born. It's some 30 years later, and now it begins. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It was the word of God for that day, as it is for our day. Verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Which is exactly what... What we'd expect after reading those references that I did from Luke 1, is it not? John proclaimed repentance. He called for a turning, a reorienting, a a move of the heart to love the things of God. You heard the essence of that in what Gabriel said, right? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Turn the hearts of the fathers. Turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, turning, repentance. This was the core of John's message. It remains the primary command of the apostolic witness. It was Peter on Pentecost who said to the crowds gathered around him in Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Even Jesus himself, The Great Commission, recorded in slightly different form in Luke chapter 24, but Luke 24, verse 47, the same thing. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance is what's proclaimed. As one commentator puts it, Christian living is far more than simply repentance, but it is not less. All spiritual advance begins with a turning away from what is hindering our obedience. And so, according to verse 3 in our passage, the repentance John called for, and that Jesus called for, and that Peter called for, and that we call for still today, is directly linked to the forgiveness of sins. And it is to be signified... By baptism. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness and therefore no salvation. And in John's context, like Peter's, like ours, it's baptism that signals the seriousness of that change, which then is probably where I need to pause for a minute so that we realize the magnitude of what John was doing in AD 29 in the region around the jordan because these are jews that john's talking to right these are the descendants of abraham these are the people of israel and here's john and he's doing as we'll see what the prophet isaiah had said he's preparing a pathway for the lord himself to return to his people And these are his people. Aren't they? Or maybe they aren't. Because in John's day, baptism had one main significance among Jews. Baptism was part of the rite that Gentiles had to undergo to convert to Judaism. It's what the proselytes did. Get it? John's there summoning Israel itself to baptism? Meaning what? Meaning John's saying effectively that without repentance, they weren't really Jews at all. Right? And while that puts John in some good company with many prophetic voices of the Old Testament before him, and we could go back and look at some of that, where the Lord speaks very clearly through his prophets of the need of faithfulness and hearts that are turned to him and repentance far and above any other aspect of fulfilling the law, etc. Suddenly here, I feel like I'm back in Galatians. Don't you? I mean, the key question of Galatians was, do you have the hearing of faith? That's what makes you a child of Abraham. Remember? That's what puts you in the covenant blessings. And what is the primary sign that you do have the hearing of faith, Jewish person in A.D. 29? repentance or gentile person in ad 29 because it's the same requirement repentance or person of any ethnicity in 21st century toronto what is the sign that you do have the hearing of faith (coughs) repentance do you remember last week if you were here uh Some of you weren't, I know. But last week, David Weston preached. And I was away, which I'm a bit sad about, because I missed what I know is a great sermon on what is my favorite text in Luke from chapter 3. If you were here and you heard David preach it, I've read his notes at least, you remember how Simeon, with the baby Jesus in his arms in the temple in Luke 3, this is faithful, righteous Simeon, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit, Simeon, clearly one who has the hearing of faith, Simeon. Remember what he said as he held the baby Jesus in the temple? He said, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, And for the glory of your people Israel. And here's John. He's preparing the way for Jesus. This baby. He's no longer a baby. And what's he saying? In essence. It's the same way for everyone. Jew or Gentile. Repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of your sins. You think the primary problem is the political darkness of this current moment, Jewish person in the first century? Well, not to discount that that was a real problem, but it wasn't simply that the nation was in trouble politically. They needed to confess and turn from sin. We all need to confess and turn from sin to prepare the way of the Lord. The call was for a morally prepared people That's the way of the Messiah's entrance because you see what Luke says here at the beginning of verse 4 now, beginning of verse 4 of Luke 3, he says, as, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. In other words, this summary of verse 3 that we just talked about, what John is doing is, Luke says, precisely in accord with what Isaiah said would happen the fundamental call to repentance as necessary to receive the forgiveness of sins, which is now symbolized in baptism, which means that John's just leveling the ground between Jew and Gentile, because this salvation is for everybody. All of that is, as it says in Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh, hear that? All flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5 and right away maybe not right away, but if you were to look into it, you'd see what Luke's doing because if you were to look at the same account in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, you don't need to right now, but if you do that later, you would see that there's some similarity between these three accounts that all three of these Gospel writers quote that first part about John the Baptist. They all have Isaiah 40, verse 3 about preparing the way of the Lord. All three of these Gospels emphasize that the highway, the picture of Isaiah here that clears the way for God's coming, how can God come among you? Only as you have a purified heart. That the coming of Jesus is the coming of this Lord, that this is what John's preparing people for. Repent. The language of Isaiah in context of Isaiah 40 is, I would argue, primarily ethical in its meaning that those who wish to see God's hand must be prepared to listen to him. It requires a humility that drives you to seek God's forgiveness, but all three Gospels have that. It's only Luke that goes on to quote verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 40. It's only Luke who writes about how it's all flesh who shall see the salvation of God. And just to make that link explicit, so you see it here, the word for salvation there that Luke uses in verse 5 That is not the usual term you find in Luke's writings for salvation. In fact, in all of Luke and Acts, the specific term that Luke uses there translated as salvation appears only three places. This is one of them. Acts chapter 28, verse 28 is another one, and you can read that later. It makes good sense once you see it. And you know what the third one is? It's Simeon from last week. It's verse 30 of chapter 2, where Simeon, holding this baby in the temple, says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for the Gentiles. I mean, look at John the Baptist is radical. He's proclaiming, in the center of Judah, a salvation for all. He's calling all to repent. And that includes any who are Jews by physical descent because as we know from our study in Galatians, if we were here, if you were here for that, that's not what makes you a true child of Abraham. And so now here we are in verse 7. If I've successfully brought us here thus far, we're at the hinge where Luke writes, John said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him john said therefore given what he was that what he was doing was the fulfillment of isaiah 40 given that his proclamation was centered on repentance as necessary for forgiveness which is the central component of salvation which is to be for all people as revealed in Jesus, and so that even Jews are being asked to be baptized. Therefore, here's what he said. Ready? It's a bit shocking. John says, You brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee? from the wrath to come brood of vipers why does he say that I mean that's a harsh pretty shocking thing and the challenging thing in trying to interpret what that means is that this is what John says to the group that has explicitly come out to be baptized by him right that's what it says So they're accepting John's message in some degree, it would seem, this radical message. So as I wrestled with this, I don't think that John's point is to say that they're just being hypocrites. I don't think he's necessarily saying that. I think he's more or less affirming that they're right to be responding as they are. Some of them would have been the leaders of the Jewish people. Matthew has John addressing Pharisees and Sadducees explicitly when he speaks here. So maybe the point is especially for them. Luke doesn't put it that way, but I think the point is more or less just to say, wow, even the brood of vipers is coming. You do need to repent. You are this brood of vipers. You need to change, you people of Israel, or face the wrath of God. I mean, I just think John's amazed that they're there. Who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's wrath in the future. God will bring judgment. We'll get to that more next week in our text. The point is, they get it, they're fleeing, they're coming to John for baptism, why? I think John's perhaps surprised, because someone warned them, I think if you pressed, John might say, it's God, it's God who warned them, there's a divinely empowered response to this message that John's proclaiming, he's amazed at it, of all things. Even the brood of vipers are fleeing the wrath to come. This is radical stuff that John's proclaiming. That's my best attempt at verse 7. and You can ask Bishop Grant later if he thinks I'm anywhere near right on that. But the people are responding. So I think John then, here's the turn. John wants to ensure, given that this is the response he's seeing, that his message is clear. They are indeed fleeing they're responding to what they hear john to be saying so now here's the full picture of what john means here's the full requirement what true repentance looks like is why john continues into verse eight you do well to be fleeing verse eight says bear fruit bear fruits In keeping with repentance, John warns them, and do not begin to say to yourselves, does he know who they are? He does. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. Thrown into the fire. Only life and deeds will enable anyone to escape the fate of fruitless trees. And once again, dear friends, I cannot help but go back to Galatians in my own heart and mind. Because the hearing of faith that we talked about at such length in that book does not consist in just your momentary response the genuineness of repentance is determined by your life right they are to be fleeing from the wrath to come but john says you must bear fruit there's fruit that comes from genuine repentance it's called the life of faith (laughs) it's called the hearing of faith it's We know this is the work of the Spirit, don't we? It is the antithesis of thinking in the way that verse 8 has it, thinking we have Abraham as our father. No, John says, no, you don't. Because in that case, he isn't actually your father at all. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Because on this point, John agrees with them. Abraham will have children. And those children will be the ones who receive the covenant blessing. The difference is, and you're you're ready to hear this after a sermon series in Galatians, the difference is that Abraham's real children aren't those of his physical descendants. They're those who follow him in faith. Here's Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. I mean, that's what Luke's saying is This is what John's proclaiming, isn't it? As Isaiah is referenced here. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, dear friends, here we are. It's Epiphany Sunday. There's no one greater than John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord who is to come. Here's the question for you on this Sunday as the Lord reveals himself to you in his Son as you're prepared for him by John. If the Lord's going to come into your life, what must be true of you? If you're going to avoid the wrath to come when the Lord comes to judge the world, what must be true of you? You see, it's the same as in John's day. What must be true, the Bible says, is that you must have faith. And John the Baptist says, that looks like repentance that bears fruit. Verse 9. Even now, John warns, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. It is laid there. Who laid it there? God. God's the judge. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's John saying, Don't trust in the kind of tree you are, Jewish or Gentile, or whatever other distinction you think matters in your life in the modern day. If there is not fruit that accords with repentance, you will be destroyed. This is not a tame Lord who is coming. What matters is repentance and its fruit. What matters is faith. Now, I've referenced Paul in Galatians all through this sermon because I can't help it. But as we end here, it shouldn't be too surprising to find out that Jesus talked this way too. In the same gospel, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43, if you want to flip over a few pages, To Luke 6, verse 43. Hear from the one whose way John was preparing. Luke 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, Jesus says. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's not what faith is. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. That's what faith is. That's the hearing of faith. Great. Or you could say, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. The word of God came to John, Luke says. The turning point of history, the coming of the Lord is at hand. This was the word of God to them, and it remains. The same to us. And so my prayer at this point is that our response is like what the crowd's response was to John that day when in verse 10, in response to all they heard, they ask, what then shall we do? And it is to that question that we'll turn our full attention next week.